0: Good morning. I I can sum up my my message in a simple sentence this morning. And as we've been thinking about who is my neighbor. This is the sermon in a sentence this morning. You can't be a good neighbor if you can't see your neighbor. Sometimes we're too busy to see And most often, we look at people, we don't really see them. Maybe we just see the gray hair. Nothing wrong with gray hair. Maybe we just see the job or the title or we see the past or the circumstance or we see the race or the ethnicity. We look at people. But we don't really see them. We don't see their heart. We we don't see their capacity. We don't see their potential. We we don't see their future. If you want to be a good neighbor, you may need to get your eyes checked. You may need to get your vision tested. Because you can't be a good neighbor, if you can't see your neighbor. It says in the story we've been talking about the last four weeks that there was a man lying half dead in the ditch, and it says that a priest and a Levite were walking down the road, and they saw the man but kept on walking, which means they saw him but they didn't see him. What made the Samaritan good, the good Samaritan, is it says that he saw the man, meaning he really did see the man, not the enemy, not the wounded person, but a person. And because he saw him, he was moved to compassion to help the man. There's a key line in our story that I'm going to share with you today about a religious leader, Jesus and a woman with a past. And Jesus says to the religious leader about the woman in his home, do you see this woman? She's right here in front of you. Are you looking at her? Do you see what I can see? The story is about the difference between looking and the difference between seeing. This week as I was preparing for the message, uh, I thought about uh, something I've been thinking about a lot this week, and forgive me, I'll probably share this a lot this year, I already have. Uh, This year is kind of a milestone for me in ministry. Uh, This summer in August, I will be remembering an anniversary that I was ordained 30 years ago when I was 25. I'm 55. I was 25, 30 years ago. I was ordained in Fort Worth, Texas at South Hills Christian Church. Been thinking about that. Last week, uh, I was sitting in here and was reminiscing a little bit and thinking about, I wonder how many sermons I've preached in 30 years. That's a lot when you preach four times a week. Thought about how many funerals I've done. I thought about how many weddings I've done. Uh, Wish I'd all written them all down like your dad, Elizabeth, didn't write them all down but I've done a lot, but I was thinking about this week about who was at my ordination service, and I thought, I wonder what it would be like and what I would say if the 55-year-old David Emery could get in sort of a time machine and go back and stand in the reception line and speak to my younger self. By the way, it's a great thing to do sometime If you want to have a little fun about what you've learned in life, sometime write down the four or five things that your older self wished that you could tell your younger self to save yourself pain, trouble, agony, and misery. You know? If I only knew then what I know now, I'd be dangerous. I would have been dangerous. Well, imagine myself this week standing in line and walking up to myself and saying, okay, here's what I want to tell you. Here's advice 55 years later, 30 years later to tell you from 55 years. This is what I tell myself. I say, first of all, David, Never, ever let a man who owns a pet lobster buy you a new suit. Not a good idea. There's a story there. A lesson learned. Um, Man shows up at my church one day, comes for a few weeks, love to have you and your wife over for dinner. We get over to his house. He's got a large fish tank and a lobster named Larry. Found Larry at a Kroger Felt really bad for him because he knew that Larry was going to be somebody's dinner. And uh, uh, bought Larry and was taking care of Larry. Over dinner, he said, I'd like to take care of, of my preacher, which should have been the clue <laughs> that maybe he would want to have a kept preacher in a cage. And uh, he wanted to buy me a suit. And I said, yes, it was not a good idea. Another story, another time. Don't let a man with a pet lobster buy you a new suit. (laughs) The second thing I would tell myself is, um, David, you need to be a little more curious about people. Be more curious. Um, Don't be too concerned about telling people about yourself. Be more concerned about listening more deeply to others. Over 30 years you're going to meet some really amazing people. You're going to meet some amazing people and you will learn a lot if you just listen to their stories and hear their stories of courage and persistence and resilience. You know, I've met some people, you would, you would pass them at Walmart and you would just walk them by and never really see who they are. But if you were ever to stop and talk to them and really get to know them, th- those kind of people, you know. There have been people in my church, not much to look at, nothing really extraordinary in terms of achievements. But when you look at what they've done with their life and when you look at their heart, I tell you, I've met some amazing people with courage and resilience and faith, and who just had a, a, a faith and a capacity to love others that was just infinite and beautiful and amazing stories of forgiveness and hope. Listen more, be curious. But this is the thing that I've learned in 30 years of walking with people is that everybody has a basic human need. Everybody has the same basic human need. The need to be seen, to know that somebody sees me, not my appearance, not my title, not my past, not, every, not the way the world defines me, but somebody can really see me. Because when somebody can see me, it means I'm valued. It means I'm understood. It means I'm appreciated. Everybody has the same basic need, you know? Because it's really, it really is, it really is a painful thing to go through life and to feel like nobody really knows you. To feel like you're alone. To to Feel, you can even feel that kind of loneliness in a crowd. You can even feel that loneliness being an extroverted person. The kind of loneliness that you feel sometimes when you feel like people don't see me, they don't know me, they're not trying to get to know me. I had that experience recently. Now, I'm an extrovert. I can meet people anywhere, anytime, anyplace. I know it's just part of the way I grew up. I got that from my dad. But a couple weeks ago, I was out in, in Southern California. I was at a minister's conference. There were 300 people from all over the United States and Canada at this conference. I didn't know a single person who was there. And they told us in the morning session that at lunch they were going to have this uh, big meet-and-greet lunch. Find a table, sit at, with pe- sit at the table with people that you don't know and get to know a group of people from around the world and around the country and just have your world expanded. We want, they want to know you. We want to know you. So, oh, great, great, great. That's, that's my sort of thing. Well, after the session was over that morning, about to go to lunch, I hung around and spoke to the keynote speaker for a minute. I wanted to ask him a question, asked the question. By the time I got out to the lunch, all the lunches were taken except for one that nobody wanted. All the seats were taken. And so here I was wandering around, out on the patio with my box lunch, feeling like I was back in sixth grade at my new school (laughs) in the lunchroom cafeteria on my first day with not a friend in the world. <laughs> you ever been there? If you ever been there? That's a lonely feeling to feel like everybody has a friend and you don't. Well, I'm walking around and suddenly this guy sees me, beautiful South African accent, come and sit with us, come on, you need a seat, there's a seat open. I sat down at lunch, I thought it was great, very friendly, they introduced themselves to me and then for the next hour, nobody looked at me, nobody spoke to me, and when I got up and left, it was as if I was invisible. It's a lonely thing, you know, to feel like nobody notices you. This last week I had a really profound experience, Uh, and everybody that had a profound experience, it was here on Thursday night for our families. uh, with special needs, probably the most, all the sessions have been really great. We had one on sexual orientation, we had one on race, one on addiction. And those are more high profile things that people are talking about in the world today. Next week, refugees, and it was really, all of them were deeply meaningful to me. The stories of courage and to hear people's stories and it was powerful to to hear them stand up from our church and just talk about their lives and to go deep with people, it was really meaningful but this one on Thursday was deeply impactful for me because I realized that there are a lot of families in our church and in our, in our community that do just feel invisible. Families who have children with special needs. I mean, I knew that they have challenges and opportunities that others don't have, but all these families from our church stood up and talked about, about their children, and some with Down syndrome, and some with autism, some with Asperger, some with other um, other things that have happened as a result of premature birth and things like that. All of them have amazing kids, amazing family life, but I heard over and over again that, to a large extent, that most of these families feel very, very invisible invisible because of the struggles that they go through and that most people have no idea and they don't feel bad about it they're not angry about it they just get up and do what they got to do and I got to tell you you know I'm a parent and it's exhausting to be a parent but man to face some of the challenges that they have where it's on for 24 seven days a week and you got to fight for your kid fight for your kid every day because others are not going to do that for you it's really And then to go to places that are not welcoming and where your kids are relatively, to some extent, invisible. Like they're perpetually trapped in the lunchroom, walking around looking for a place to sit, but nobody's made it a place for them to sit. And I heard a lot of the parents, all of them said the same thing. They said, if you could just do one thing for us, instead of walking past my son or my daughter to speak to me, go speak to my daughter, speak to my son. And we have a young man in our church, and he's here right now. Wes, I love you, Wes. Wes, you're awesome. You know what, Wes, raise your hand, Wes. Wes was one of our speakers. Wes grew up here, and Wes has Asperger, and he believes that God gave it to him, and he's special and beautiful, and he spoke. And he spoke. Did you know that, Wes, if you were to say Wes, let me ask. Hey, Wes, I was born on December 29th, December 29th, 1961. What day of the week was I born? Friday. Okay. See what I mean? That's pretty amazing. That's amazing. You could do that. any. You can go back to the 1800s. You can do that. Amazing, brilliant. But people with Asperger and other forms of autism, they process things differently than we do, uh, than, than others do. And so when you speak to them, you be, they don't read emotions and feelings, and he said this, and so it makes them harder to communicate. And so we're in such a doggone hurry, we never stop to even talk to anybody. We just pass on, and we make assumptions about people. But, but the reality is, Wes is probably the smartest person in the whole town. <laughs> but we don't stop. We're always in a hurry. We don't, we don't see. It's a painful thing to be looking for a, a seat at the table when nobody sees you, nobody recognizes you. very painful thing to feel invisible, to feel alone, regardless of what it is. You know, because you, you can't be a neighbor, you can't see your neighbor. That's what this story is all about. Look at the story with Jesus now. So here's what happens in the story. It says one of the Pharisees one day invited Jesus uh, to have dinner with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table with him. And there was a woman in that town who lived a, a sinful life, and, and everybody could see her, okay? They were looking at her, but they didn't, really, they didn't really see her. They knew something about her. We don't know exactly what it is, we can assume. But when she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, uh, she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Not a reason I think she went there. She went there because she knew something about Jesus. She went there to that dinner party uh, to risk being ostracized, rejected, and judged by the religious crowd because she knew that in the present when you're in the presence of Jesus he could see you he could see people he was able to look behind the disfigured body of the leper reach out and touch the leper because he saw the humanity behind the disfigurement of the disease people looked at the leper and saw a leper Jesus looked at him and saw a human being when, when you were in the presence of Jesus he had your full attention he wasn't thinking about anybody but about you. And so whether she'd had contact with him or not before, the reality was that she was going there because she knew that he would see her. He would be the only person in that whole town who knew her and who would see her. And so she goes and she does an extravagant thing. It was an awkward moment, you know. Imagine, imagine the awkwardness of this moment. She stood behind him, perhaps maybe fearing standing in front of him stood behind him weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This is just an extravagant act. Sometimes the, the, the religious leader might have thought it was an erotic thing to do, because in that culture, the only time a woman would take down her hair was for her man. And to take down your hair for a in the presence of other men that were not your husband was reason to be stoned or reason to be condemned or to be considered a a loose woman. But what the woman was doing here was not an erotic act. It was a passionate act of service and gratitude. Because you know when someone's been in the presence of Jesus. When they've been in the presence of Jesus, they go to great lengths to show gratitude, to show heartful thankfulness. Because she was just there to show him thanksgiving and praise and she didn't care if anybody judged her because he loved her for who she was. The only person in the world maybe that ever looked at that woman and saw her for who she was. And so the man says, when the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, what do you think he saw? He didn't see what Jesus saw, did he? No. No. He saw a disgraceful woman. He saw a woman with a past. He saw a woman perhaps with a present. Uh, Saw a woman by her label. Saw a woman because of her mistakes. Didn't see what Jesus did. Who saw her potential. Saw her capacity. Saw her beauty. Saw her inner life. Didn't see that. And so he said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who was touching him and the kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Oh, interesting. Oh, Jesus knew exactly who she was. He didn't see her as a sinner. He saw her as a person who was forgiven. Saw her as a person with her. he knew exactly who she was. You know who didn't know who she was? The religious leader, he had no clue. He was totally blind. You know what's interesting about this passage? I'll give you a little tip here, maybe you never thought of this before. I'm gonna give you two things that are gonna blow the top of your mind off right now that you never thought of before. But you know in your Bible you read it says on the heading, it says, a sinful woman anoints Jesus. Who do you think put that there? Dr. Luke didn't write that in there. That was written by a biblical commentator many years later when they divided the Bible up into passages and someone was looking at that passage and put that heading there. You know what? He got it wrong. It's incorrect. Take it and scratch out of your Bible and write the correct heading in the Bible. It should say a grateful woman gives her thanks. It should say a religious man is completely blind. It should say that religious people who can read their Bible but can't see people bring a lot of harm and a lot of misery and a lot of pain and a lot of suffering in the world because they judge and condemn and don't see what Jesus sees. That's what this story is about. Jesus had perfect vision. He could see. He could see what the man couldn't see. And maybe you never thought of this. I realize this is perhaps a bit taking a bit of a liberty with the text. But did it occur to you that maybe this woman had been to this man's house before? That maybe she felt comfortable walking in the door because she'd walked into that house before and let her hair down for the man for another reason. And maybe Jesus is saying to this man, when she was touching you, did you know who she was? You know what? There's a reason why women love Jesus. They love Jesus because he saw them as people, not as sexual objects and objects of sexual desire. In that culture, you know, Jesus gave total value to women on the same level that he placed men. And that's the reason, you know, at the cross, the only people present were his, were women. Women seemed to get what men didn't seem to get in this story. So he's really telling the man, you know, this story is really about the man's blindness, not about the woman's past or her sinfulness. She's already been forgiven. And so what does he say to him? He goes on and says, hey, let me tell you something. I got something I want to tell you and and give it to him. He said, tell me. When I read this, I think, am I willing to invite Jesus into my home? Am am I willing to let him come into my house to where I really live and let him speak to me this way? I, I hope I am. You know, I got a lot to learn because I'm blind. And he then tells him the story, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And he says, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And the man had no idea, who's he talking to? He's saying to the man, you have no idea. You have just as much to be forgiven as this other man, this woman. Simon, you have no clue. You have a little capacity to love because you you don't you don't even see yourself accurately. Let, let me say this to you. I don't want to get in your business. Uh, but can I get in your business? The reality is if, if you judge others, you... If you judge others, if you don't really see people, if you look at people, you don't see them, if you look at them and you're looking at them based on appearance, if you don't have an accurate assessment of another person, the truth is you probably don't have an accurate assessment of yourself. If you are condemning of others, the truth is you don't have an accurate portrayal of who you are as a person. When you judge another person or you just look at another person, it's not really an indicator of who the other person is. You know who it really points out? It really points out you. When you say something negative about another human being, it's the truth is you're really only revealing who you are. And so what he's really saying here is she's been forgiven a lot, so she... You are missing it. You have no idea what you still have to be forgiven. And so this becomes a critical moment. The story says, do you see this woman? Do you see her? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her hair and tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't even give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. And then he says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. She's already been forgiven. She's already been set free. This is not a sinful woman that's come to anoint Jesus. This is a forgiven woman that's become to anoint Jesus. That's just what religious people do when they read Scripture but don't see people. You see, Jesus is always warning people to put people first. It's about people first. Remember what he said? The Sabbath was made for man not the man for the Sabbath." He comes right out of the the prophet's tradition from Isaiah who says, where God says to Isaiah, I don't want their fasting and their sackcloth and their ashes and their repentance. They give me their fasting, but they don't serve and take care of the poor. That's why Jesus said, I have come to give liberty to the oppressed, and to give sight to the blind. He's not talking about physical blindness. He's talking about spiritual blindness. And so then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We don't know what happened to the man. We don't know if the man ever got his vision corrected. We don't know if he let Jesus touch his eyes or not. We don't know. We don't know. But I can tell you this. Do you know why, do you know why I'm a Christian? I'm a Christian because when I was walking around my middle school cafeteria, (laughs) looking for a place to sit, there was a little small church they gave me a seat at their table. The table where I you know, had my lunch in middle school was a, was a difficult table to go to. And I, I didn't always feel welcome. But every Sunday, United Memorial Christian Church, there was a group of people that could see me. Wanda and Betty and they could see me. And I felt valued and I felt loved and the first time I ever saw Jesus was in the eyes of those folks at my church who saw me and who gave me a seat at their table. You know when I was at a seminary after I got ordained I went to this little church called Parkview Christian Church and I will tell you it was uh, I went to that church because I fell in love with them because they had great eyesight. They could just see people. It was a small church, struggling, dying church. The neighborhood was changing. It was violent. It was very, very crime-infested, drug-infested. There were a lot of murders in and around the church. Many of the mainline Protestant churches had moved out of the neighborhood to the wealthier suburbs, leaving the shell of their old buildings behind and leaving behind a lot of people. But there was this group of people, about 50 or 60 of them, they just stayed behind. They never moved. They just stayed there and loved people. Because of the way they loved people, you know, all kinds of odd people showed up. We never knew what was going to happen on a Sunday morning. I remember there was a guy there named Paul. Paul, when he was in the Navy, fell from one deck of the ship to another deck, landed on his head, crushed the top of his skull. They put a steel plate in his head. He was never the same again. You know, it made him weird in sort of a wonderful sort of way. Paul, I think at that point, never decided to, to shave or cut his hair again. He had big mutton lamb chops on the sides of his face, big wild-looking hair. He had a beard. He looked a little bit like John the Baptist. But instead of finding, like, you know, honey and a locust wing in his beard you'd probably find a chicken wing covered in barbecue sauce. And uh, most churches he'd walk into, they'd want to put the security detail on him, you know. Wild, wild guy. He was on a Navy pension, Navy disability, took care of a big, large, extended family. Remember one time he came to church one Sunday with a black eye because he said his mama got mad at him and hit him in the face with a frying pan after making some cornbread? Never know what was going to happen when Paul would show up. But you know that little church they loved Paul, Paul came every Sunday and Paul had been around so long, they loved him so much, they made him a deacon and they put him in charge of coffee. And on the Sundays when he was highly caffeinated, we kept him at the back because Paul had halitosis and he was a close talker. We thought he'd scare off the guest. (laughs) I remember, you never know, Paul, Paul was, Paul was, uh, he just loved to show gratitude and he was awkward and he'd make a scene and I remember one time one one day I was pumping gas in my car, and here came Paul riding up on his moped. Big old moped, put gas in, saw me, started yelling. He was wearing pajamas and Razorback house shoes. And now this is my pastor, Pastor Dave. He's got a big old set of ceramic hands on his chest, folded like this with a hole drilled through with a yarn tied around it to hang it around his neck. He'd go, I can drive my moped anywhere because I got the praying hands of Jesus to protect me. Like the one time he wore them to the baseball game, I kept telling him that the guy out in the outfield. His name was Jesus, not Jesus. So we kept yelling, Jesus, put in Moses, Jesus. Highly, highly awkward moment. Paul, but they love Paul. They love Paul. I'll never forget, though, the day that I got the phone call from Paul's mother. Uh, Paul's mother called to tell us that he had been killed. He was killed. <laughs> we t- told him not to do this. But he was fearless. He got on the freeway driving his moped and was in a terrible accident and was killed. A few days later, we had the funeral at the church and I will tell you something, the whole church was packed and filled with people. Filled with people who could see Paul, what the world couldn't see Paul. They just saw a strange-looking man, but we saw Jesus in him, and he saw Jesus in us. And I remember telling us, I don't know what what heaven is like, but I know when I cross through the gates, Paul's going to be the first one to hand me a cup of coffee. And I hope he has better breath. (laughs) That was during the summer, and Paul's family, none of them came to church. But right there before Christmas, on the Sunday before Christmas, Paul's mom came walking in the door with a great big box, all wrapped nice. said, where's Blanche? Well, Blanche was the first person to welcome Paul. She was an elder in the church. She was a retired school teacher. She was really, really smart. Her parents, our family, our children kept trying to get her to move out of the neighborhood because the neighbor was dangerous. But No, she loved our church. She loved the work she did. She was down there every day doing stuff with people, and she was Paul's elder, and She loved him, and it broke her heart when he died. Paul's mom walked in with this package and said, where's Blanche? I said, Blanche is over there. Carried the package over to Blanche and said, Blanche, my son loved you. And he bought this gift for you for Christmas and wrapped it the day before he died. You can't be a neighbor if you can't see your neighbor.